Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors podcast. And we're back with another episode of Housewife of Horrors. I am here as usual with my ever faithful companion Evil from 3B Video. Say hello, Evil. Hey, yo. All right. And he's just back there chilling. Got a big smile on his face because he was laughing about some stuff right before I pushed record. So cat's tail hitting me in the face, trying to be a third member of the show today. Yes, we have Patches in here in the middle. Um, She is purring, but I don't think the microphone's going to pick that up. Anyway, on with the show. Our last episode was very heavy. We had we discussed Ch- uh, Charlie Chopoff and his assaults against young boys. Uh, this week we're going to lighten it up and we are going to talk about John Holmes and the Wonderland murders. I mean, I guess we're going to lighten it up as much as we can for murder. I guess we're going to go from grisly children attack to uh, 70s porno stars, some murders. Ooh, I don't want to give it all away. Anyway. Oh, that's not upbeat. I don't know what is. And it's not 70s porno stars. It's just one 70s porno star. So anyway, now that we've got that. That's that's a loosely used term, a 70s porno star. Uh, He actually kind of, he was a star. Like, okay, so my sources for this was I watched the documentary uh, WAD. The Life and Times of John C. Holmes, in which they speak to Sharon, his wife, Don, the girlfriend, Bill Amerson, his longtime friend slash manager, uh, Bill's children, which is John Holmes's godchildren. Uh, they t- speak to a couple other people in the industry, like uh, Bob Vossi is a director that John worked with numerous times through the Swedish erotica series. And uh, let's see, P.T. Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, who directed Boogie Nights, which we will get into all of that as well. But this documentary covered so many people from his life that were involved in his life, involved in the business. Uh, And you kind of glazed over it. I think you really need to go back and chew on that a little bit more of the title of this documentary. Wad? Yes, it's because... Okay, Burying when, the lead, not a bit there. When John Holmes got into porn, uh, he had, in 1968, 1969, he got into some unaccredited roles. Uh, and then in 1970, he met up with, I forgot the director's name, uh, I'll get to it. I have it in my notes later down the line. Anyway, he meets the director of the who will become the director of the wad series the johnny wad the private detective porno series in which they kind of Uh, it's 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 layered it's deeper it's a character's name yes johnny wad is just the character of john holmes i just assumed it was just like i'm just gonna name my documentary literally spunk like well that's not you can't quite do that. Like, all right, how about just semen the documentary? And we'll get into all of that. I kind of want to cover the true crime stuff before we get into... There are two movies that were made about this, which is one I've already mentioned, Boogie Nights, and then the other one is a Val Kilmer movie from... Uh, I can't remember the year. i got to look down at my notes, but 2000-something. Um, I want to say five, seven, somewhere around there. Um and it's done by Val Kilmer. Actually, the whole crew in that movie, like Lisa Kudrow knocked it out. 
Paris Hilton has a cameo. There's just all kinds of great acting in this movie. And uh, hats off to everybody in the Wonderland cast. Cause Definitely. I know there are more words I didn't think would go together that I would hear. What, well, Lisa? Great acting and Paris Hilton in the same breath. Okay, she has like a cameo, and I don't, she just came to mind right as I was totally talking about the movie. But like, he's it. on a boat when he first meets Eddie Nash, and he's on Eddie Nash's yacht. And not a boat, a yacht. Uh, he's on Eddie's yacht, and Paris Hilton is just one of the beautiful women that's kind of around for money, cocaine kind of a thing. And she just has a bit part where she's doing some coke on the boat with Val. And <laughs> uh, Eddie Nash, played by Eric Bogosian, is like, all right, you you get lost now, because he's like a Middle Eastern dude. And she just kind of skedaddles off the set, and that's it for Paris Hilton. So it's not like she had, you know, lines well, I mean, she did some lines, but she didn't say any lines. But anyway. Oh, wow. I know. Totally play on words with that. I, I thought that was brilliant. Coke on a boat. I didn't say Coke on a boat. Yeah, I said did. she was doing some lines. Yeah, but you did say Coke on a boat. I did say Coke on a boat? You said Coke on a boat. Oh, I'm a poet and didn't know it. Well, anyway, as we all know, John Holmes was an adult film star. Dare I say, legendary adult film star. With, he was. Legend, I mean. <laughs> We're still talking about this shit today. They're still using him in pornos today. Not I mean, like. It's, I mean, legendary in the same sense that like the dude from the Dodgeball movie is legendary. Okay. Like, Patches he, O'Houlihan, famous in the Dodgeball world. You ask anyone else, I'm like, who? Legendary as in, we'll get to why he's legendary. If you don't know why he's legendary, but if you do know, but, then just sit back and listen to me explain it to him. But legendary just in that crew. Like, just the same way, like, pro wrestling has legendary figures that I know about that that everyone else in the neighborhood wouldn't have a clue who the fuck they are. Like, it's a very exclusive club. So he is like the Hulk Hogan of porn. Wow. Like, everybody knows. He's a household name. Like, everybody knows who he is. When oh, you talk I, about you, anybody... You cannot say a porn star is a household name. John Holmes is. No. I bet we could go to the streets of downtown Kansas City with a clipboard and look all official and shit and ask a hundred people... Look all official and shit. Really. We can ask a hundred people, like, fucking Family Feud and be like, do you know who John Holmes is? I will say over half do not know and I'll be like, see, Whatever, household, man. Household. You doubt... What the- household is that becoming a topic of discussion? Like, you know... Sweetheart, you know who I think is a damn good porn star? Johnny Holmes. I like to call him Johnny because it feels more impersonal. Okay, shut up. I'm kidding. Um, anyway. Shut up. Fine, I'll shut up. So anyway, he made a name uh, after having a very impressive asset. Now, there are... Asset. Yes, there are very conflicting reports about how big this asset really is. Conflicting reports. There are some people. Okay, so on his, what did the LA Times say? On his Wikipedia page, which I kind of always start there, but then I go to the references and click where you know, and I read those references, and as opposed to the Wikipedia page. But anyway, the references state that it was never actually his penis was never actually measured. Penis. His penis was never actually measured. So there's no, like, official documentation of how big it is. But some rumors say that it was up to 16 inches. But Bill Amerson said that John loved, and would do it at the drop of a hat, loved measuring it for people who didn't believe him. And Sharon will back this up as well about <laughs> yeah, like the a, size. Like a fucking yardstick or a 
tape measure just always. I don't on know his what the belt. fuck he had, but he would always he like he carries a tape measure the way we carry cell phones back in the day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, doctor tape measure too. It was recorded at thirteen and a half inches long. So there's now, a circumference, but we get into just, that later. Just for further clarification, is that uh, thirteen inches uh, all the way? Half of the way, or just, you know, a cold shower. Okay, um, in the documentary wad, like about eight minutes in, I watched this on YouTube, and they totally had, you know, like a full frontal scene for like a couple of seconds on there. And from the looks of that clip, it looked limp right there. Like, the girls still have clothes on, he was just kind of talking to them. So anyway, uh, it didn't look impressive when it was soft. However, I'm going to assume the 13 and a half is when he's at attention. So as you would say, a grower, not a shower. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't judge a limp dick, especially on a TV, but 13 and a half at hard. Can I move on now? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so um, we'll definitely get into the myths and legends of John Holmes and his amazing member, but for now, let's cover the true crime aspect of this case. If you don't keep up with 70s porno stars... <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> and from the sounds of it, you don't. I don't. <laughs> uh, just know about his film career or heard stories about how his big his dick really was will sit back and get ready to hear some shit because this story goes from the height of fame to be indicted for multiple murder. Who's like the VH1 True Hollywood story? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. All right, so John Holmes rose to fame throughout the 70s. Starring in a ton of films, his most notable movies was the Johnny Wad Private Detective series, in which there were 14 movies in a part of that series. Jesus Christ. What? People were loving it. Like it was like were they storylines? Yes, it, it was like, like it was him solving crimes and fucking chicks. Well, is it? I'm curious. Is it like well, Magnum? and there were different. There were different ones. I won't. Is it get... like Magnum PI? Like I guess like... I don't know. I haven't seen the Johnny Wad series. You watched all fourteen of these. Yeah, I did that. crime films. I did I'm that sure. last week while you were at work. Fourteen movies. Not even that many. Friday the Thirteenth. Okay, so thirteen of the fourteen were made over a period of seven years, and the last one being made eight years later after the last one, and. Uh, the last one was two years before his death. Although his movies were successful, uh, obviously successful, or they wouldn't have made 14 of them, but I digress. Um, his life on the big screen was a success. However, his personal life was just in a downward spiral. Um, after he left, he left home at the age of 16 after a violent fight with his stepdad. And some research says that he entered the military with forged documents. But when Sharon tells the story on the documentary, um, he she says that uh, he went to his mom and says, look, I can't stay here. Please sign me into the army. Two weeks later, he was in boot camp. So I guess it really doesn't matter if he forged documents or if he went to his mom. Needless to say, he was in the military. So after three years, he spent a majority of that time in Nuremberg in Germany, and then he came back after three years with an honorable discharge. He moves to L.A. He starts working a string of odd jobs. Uh, one of these jobs was an ambulance driver, and it's during this point when he meets his first wife, Sharon. Um, I 
don't know if I'm going to say her last name right. Gibnini. Gibnini. Uh, G-E-B-E-N. G Gibini. Gibini. Anyway, I'm sorry, Sharon. Uh, they were married in August of 1965. And here's another conflicting story. So uh, the conflicting story was that John Holmes was 21 at the time, but Sharon says that he was underage and that his mom had to sign the papers for him to get married. So, Mom, can I join the military? Mom, Mom can, can I, I get married? married? So they would be uh, legally married for 19 years. They divorced in 1984, but during this time, aside from his career, he was also involved with... This is kind of, this is where the skis starts to pick up, but he gets involved and grooms a 15-year-old girl named Dawn Schiller. Um, they meet in 1976, but at one point, all three of them were living together. Dawn, Sharon kind of took on this mother-daughter dynamic, and both speak very lovingly and highly of each other, which is reflected in the movie Wonderland, um, like Kate Bosworth and Lisa Kudrow. They just knocked it out. Anyway, uh, he would meet wife number two, Lori Rose, but that won't be till way later in his career. We'll get to her. Anyway, while listening to Sharon talk about him, not only does she describe him as a friend, but she speaks of him fondly, even though he does a lot of douchebag things. Uh, and she kind of, she says that she supported his career. Uh, however, she didn't want details. So she was kind of like, he basically, the story went, he was kind of holding his dick one day and he told Sharon, hey, I think I know what I want to do with my life. And she's like, okay, well, if that's what you want to do, but I don't want to know who you're fucking, how you're doing it. I don't want to know any of this stuff. So in 1968 to 1969, he gets into some films, but like I said, all those roles were unaccredited. Uh, it wasn't until 1971, here is his name, when he meets director Bob Chin, uh, and they made the first Johnny Wad film. So Bob Chin, he went on to do a ton of movies, but his big claim to fame is the Johnny Wad series. So the first story... The story of Bob first meeting John was kind of a funny story. Bob shares, and I am going to do a lot of direct quotes because there's some of this stuff where you had to hear the story from this person's mouth or I just couldn't find any words to <laughs> paraphrase this. Uh, yeah, anyway, he shares, he goes, quote, I first met John uh, when he was a scruffy looking guy, walks into the office, scruffy looking at this big afro hair he asked for a job as a crew member uh, he said he was a gaffer i said well we have a gaffer he says well i'm also a grip and he goes we have grip we don't need any crew people then he said he told me he was an actor and i said well you know what we have um Shit, I lost my line here. Well, you know uh, what you have done. Show me your credentials. And he showed me his credentials. And like the whole time when he says, show me your credentials, like a smile starts to come across his face. Like it's my time to shine. <laughs> well, Bob is back in this moment of standing in front of John going, well, show me your credentials. And John pulled out the credentials. I'm just picturing meat from Bachelor Party just dropping that shit on tables and... 
hot dog buns. Uh, Bob smiles and laughs, and he go uh, like he was right back there at that moment. So, <laughs> oh, that penis. Uh, I mean, come on. When somebody's like, show me your credentials, usually most people pull out a headshot. Yeah, this guy pulled out a head, all right. Anyway, so Bob says to his partner, you know, we can make a film with this guy. And his partner replied, God, what a wad that guy has. And the rest what? is... Yes, that the rest is porno history. So they basically kind of saw him, and Bob's partner was like, what a wad that guy has. And then the Bob... you call it? A wad. Like, who the hell does that? Uh, apparently, Bob weird. Chen's partner does. So the movie was so successful uh, that the second to the series was written and made and came out the same year. Looking at the timeline of these movies, four of those seven year, years, he did two and three of the Johnny Wad movies. In the documentary Wad, Larry Flint was quoted as saying, quote, his name is synonymous with adult entertainment industry. I think his participation was legendary and always will be for decades to come. And you know what? Larry was right because they're still talking about him. They're still making movies about him. Once again, I'm going to argue that he is legendary and a household name. <laughs> I'm not saying he's household. a... No, I mean, come on. A lot of people that we would, you know, say the hundred people, you know, grew up in the 70s and 80s. I'm sure they watched the news. They saw things. They know. So he's probably a household name just because it was such a name that was in the news, entertainment news, stuff like that. So I'm not saying that he's a household name because everybody was watching this fucking series. I I, I just put it to the test of anyone listening you can find a way to either find you on your Facebook page or comment on where you're listening to the pod. If you know knew who this fellow was before the the housewife here dropped the knowledge on you. Yeah, get at us. Anybody listening to this, drop me a line. My Instagram, my Facebook, uh, just drop me a line and say, yes, I knew who John Holmes was before this podcast. Prove me wrong. Yeah, prove him wrong. All right, so now it's 1973, and he's earning big money, but he gets arrested for pimping and pandering. Pandering. Yes, and to prevent from going to jail, he becomes an informant. He told police a lot of information about other movies being made, who was funding those films, who was in those films, and all of them... uh, all had uh, all of them ended up getting busted, but the cop that he was working with um, didn't elaborate what the other film or other cast was busted for. So uh, maybe it was like illegally producing pornography. I don't know. So anyway, he was just informing on people in movies around him. I guess you know he he was just throwing people under the bus. So anyway, um, it was 1975-76 when he got into using cocaine. So he didn't get into coke like the first few years of his career. Um, But after a while, he started using daily and it spirals into freebasing. It is now the late 70s and now his habit has started to affect his performance abilities. Uh-oh. He wasn't able to maintain, um, and this was burning daylight, wasting money, and him not being able to get it up showed in his 1980 movie, Insatiable. They called it a flaccid performance. 
Who's they? Um, I don't know. The director? <laughs> people involved? <laughs> whoever was on IMDb that day? The folks on the streets. <laughs> so from what I read, after his limp performance, he gets into a life of crime to support his habit. Oh, God. It reads like he wasn't making money from the movies, uh, so he got into crime. But when I looked at his IMDb page, he would go on to do another 68 movies after Insatiable, with 13 of those movies coming out just in 1980 alone, the same year as that week performance. So I think Insatiable, he was just having an off period. What was his crime? Holding people up with his penis erect in his pants and like threatening that it's a gun in his pocket? Like, what's his crimes that he's doing? Uh, he got into, like, stealing cars, stealing from people, uh, pimping out Dawn for money. Um, yeah, his 15-year-old love interest, he pimps her out, beats the shit out of her. Oh, I was just uh, picturing him using his penis <laughs> as a methods of doing crimes like getting it hard and smacking it against car windows to bust it open and steal the car kind of thing. No, he didn't use his dick in the crimes, okay? I'm just, I'm just making up future movies he's going to be in. He's dead. Oh, well. Spoiler. Anyway, so because of his problems, he wasn't getting hired by some directors. But when he did work, the money wasn't as good as it used to be. Now he's prostituting himself to anyone who was interested, selling drugs and theft to pay for his habit. He also forced Don into selling herself so he could get his fixes. There, is that happy? I, I mean, if you just would have waited with your commentary, I would have gotten to the part of what well, crimes he was doing. Well, I'm sorry, man. You gotta be, you gotta have a pretty shit reputation. Of people in the porn industry are like, don't hire that guy. He's a liability. <laughs> anyway, this is when he started hanging around the group referred to as the Wonderland Gang. Uh, it was a group of junkies, dealers, and criminals that lived in a house at 8763 Wonderland Avenue. Oh, I was going to say, like, they, that sounds like such a wholesome-sounding gang for such not what they're doing. No, they lived, it was a bunch of them uh, that lived in this house. Sounds like a group of teenagers that would jump out and stop you from doing, you know, illegal narcotics or something. So Joy Miller, she owned the house, and her boyfriend, Dilly, uh, Billy DeVarell, uh, was her boyfriend, Ronald Lioness however you say that in that last name. Ronald Linus. Definitely sounds like Leo- Leonis. Guy. I'm sorry. I'm just not good with some of these last names. Anyway, he's a federally convicted drug smuggler. And then David Lind, he was there too, and he, part of this gang. And he was, you know, a criminal too, stealing drugs, shit like that. You know, the typical gambit. So the house was described as, quote, the house was always open for business mega pharmacy selling coke heroin uppers and downers to anyone who knew the address there was a lot of traffic all day all night one neighbor told rolling stones uh, rolling stone magazine quote everything from volkswagens to a rolls royce silver shadow they threw brown bags of dope off the balcony there was shouting laughing rock and roll 24 hours a day end quote <laughs> So very undercover, very slick about that. Oh, yeah, they were totally discreet with their <laughs> drug dealing business. Bags thrown out of windows while metal music is playing. <laughs> Actually, uh, in the movie Wonderland, it's always kind of like some 70s rock going on, like Leonard Skinner, shit like that. Um, so does Freebird not. So there's no heavy metal at this point. This is still the 70s. Oh, wow. So John would end up meeting... Um, 
Eddie Nash, who owned several nightclubs around L.A., uh, very known to the police. He's a douchebag as well. That sounds like a dude who would own nightclubs. Eddie uh, that's, Nash. That's actually not his real name. He, really? He's like Middle Eastern, and he has a Middle Eastern name. And You're going to be Eddie Nash. But he just kind of went by Eddie Nash, who, in Boogie Nights, Eddie Nash's character is played by an excellent Alfred Molina, Doc Ock. Yes, he plays him. It's the scene where Thomas Jane, Mark Wahlberg, and John C. Riley all go to the house, and um, Alfred Molina is like in this like thong bikini underwear, which Eddie Nash was famous for wearing when he was at home. He was just always in thong underwear. I mean, you have to be wearing that stuff if you're famous and well known for it. Uh, they actually refer to it as his trademark briefs later trademark. on, but we won't anyway. Uh, it's that scene. That's Eddie Nash. Well, anyway. Talk about an image I've never seen, but now it's burned in my mind. John ends up becoming the middleman between Eddie Nash and the Wonderland gang for exchange of stolen goods, drugs, shit like that. So John is excessively using, and this is making the gang mad. So, and he's also fallen out of favor because, um, I can't remember the guy's name. One of the Wonderland gang guys had like all these stolen antique guns and he's like, take these over to Eddie and see what you can fucking get. Well, he, John of course takes the guns over there, comes back with no guns, no drugs, no money, no nothing. So they're fucking fired up at this point. They just forgot them over there. No, I, I, we'll get into that. I always say we'll get into that, and we do. But anyway, um, so um, he's fallen out of favor with the gang. So Holmes tells the gang about all the money and the drugs that Eddie Nash has in his house, and they should go rob him. <laughs> so it's now on the morning of June 29th. 1981 with the map of the house drawn up by john the gang goes to eddie's house all right they kind of show this differently in the wonderland movie as opposed to how it was explained in the documentary or in the stuff that i read so in the movie wonderland john leaves the side door open they of course have this map they just bust in, guns a fucking blazing, telling everybody to get on the ground. It's a robbery kind of thing, and then they fucking jam. But in this, it says Lind whips out a stolen police badge and handcuffs Eddie, Eddie's three hundred pound bodyguard. <laughs> this is Detective Wad badge. <laughs> uh, so while getting this large bodyguard in cuffs, Lind's gun accidentally fires and grazes the bodyguard. So the bodyguard getting shot slash grazed. That is something that is consistent, but just how they got, not how they got into the house, but what happened the moments they got into the house about whipping out the badges. It's more sensationalized for the motion picture than real life. But I think the badges was more sensational than the movie, because in the movie they just basically bust in, guns a-blazing, everybody get on the fucking ground, they start I, robbing the place, and then they jam. That's more appealing, though, for a cinema-going audience. Like, it's not that have the same wallop. With like breaking out these fucking fake badges. <laughs> okay, so here's where I get to it. Nash rus rushes out of his room in his trademark briefs to see what's going on. He thinks he's going to die, so he starts begging for his life. 
The gang gets him to open the safe in which they score. Now, I like how they did this in the movie Wonderland. In Wonderland, they show, you know, like cocaine, $200,000, cash, blah, 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 blah. They kind of listed all out and how much they scored. And it was like $1.2 million worth of shit in 1981. But in this, they just said, um, they get him to open the safe. They scored, quote, heroin, cocaine, quaaludes, jewelry, and $185,000 worth of cash. So, the gang gets back to their house and they divvy up the score. Um, um, let's see. This next particular part says that what happened over the next 72 hours is disputed to this day. So, this is kind of a conjunction of what I've read, some police reports, what Sharon said, what Dawn says, so this is all kind of piecing together, but July 1st, 1981, so it's like a couple days later, um, it's just, oh, um, I totally forgot this part. I forgot to type it in my notes, but anyway, uh, a couple days, like a day after the fucking robbery, Apparently, they figure out, Eddie Nash figures out who robbed him because he sees like John Holmes or one of the bodyguard does and he's wearing some of the jewelry that was stolen. So, of course, they fucking get John. They're beating his ass saying, who the fuck did this kind of a thing? And, of course, he fucking rats out the Wonderland gang. <laughs> so, it's now July 1st, 1981. It's just after 4 a.m. when at least three men... And the article states, quote, one of whom may or may not have been John Holmes, end quote. I'm guessing this is the police speculation, but we'll find out as the investigation unfolds. They'd only had seen his penis. They haven't been able to identify him. So anyway, at least three men entered the Wonderland house with lead pipes. They went from room to room beating anyone they saw throughout the house, including a couple of people that weren't in the gang, but they were definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was blood everywhere. All the people were dead. Uh, all the dead people were beaten into a pulp. Like they even show. I'll get into that in a second. So anyway, neighbors didn't call police about the screaming or thumping because. Uh, they thought it was just the usual disruptive <laughs> crowd that was over there, you know, fucking being themselves. Just another day of the week. It was a constant thing, according to the neighbors. <laughs> So, it was later the same day that someone working next door kept hearing this dog bark. So, he goes to see what's up. He's thinking maybe this dog is fucking hurt. So, he sees that the front door is slightly open, in which he steps in and discovers a body on the couch. Well, what's left of a body. The body will be identified as a um, friend of David Lind. Um, actually, it was kind of his girlfriend in the movie, but her name, Barbara Richardson, and she was 22 at the time. She was one of the two that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. In total, there were four found dead at the scene and one survivor, which was Ronald's wife, Susan, who she was the other wrong person, wrong time. Uh, in the movie Wonderland, like they kind of split up because he was fucking shooting up. And she goes down there because he tells her, hey, I'm clean, I'm clean. She gets down there. 
things kind of seem good. She finds out he's shooting up again. She wants to fucking leave, but he gets her to start shooting up with him. They're laying in bed that night. She should have fucking left when she had the chance. But anyway, there was so much blood that the police had to do a video walkthrough. And this tri- at this trial, this would be the first of its kind because this was the first trial ever where videotape of the death scene was used as evidence. So, and they show a couple of clips, like very quick clips in the Johnny Wad documentary. Oh my God. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, the movie Wonderland, that movie is so spot on. It really is. And the scene in the house, like they, wow. I highly recommend seeing it. If you kind of want something close to the truth, I'm sure they took a couple liberties, changed a couple little things, but from what I read and saw and then watching this movie, I don't really think they changed much. But anyway, David Lynn survived because he was at a hooker with a motel. He was questioned by police, and then he tells police about the home invasion at Eddie Nash's house. So this is all kind of starting to fall into place. Shortly after the murders, this is all kind of going on at the same time. Like, the murders happen, it's discovered, David Lind is talking to the police, and shortly after the murders, John shows up at Sharon's house covered in blood. Okay, now here's another conflicting story that comes up in the Wad documentary. Sharon said that John admitted to her by saying that, quote, I was at a murder, uh, wait, I was at a murder and four people were killed in front of me, end quote. He goes on to tell her about the robbery details um, and that he set it up and they were killed because he of that robbery that he set up. The article from True TV Crime Library said that he told Sharon he was in a car accident. And of course, her being a nurse, she, you know, starts caring for him. She has him in a bath. She's cleaning him up and she sees that there's no injuries. <laughs> and so she's like, whose fucking blood is this? Mine? Um, so anyway, she doesn't see any injuries. She sees that the blood isn't his. He cleans himself off and then he takes off with Dawn. Uh, they end up at a motel in Sherman Oaks, California. Now, Don says in the Wad documentary that after the Eddie Nash robbery, he, quote, pulled out a briefcase with the largest pile of cocaine I've ever seen in my life. I didn't question the pile. I know this to be the loot, you know, his cut of the robbery. We just got high. We just got way high, end quote. <laughs> we'll chip away at it. So they are found days later at the motel by the police. Both are brought in for questioning, but Don didn't know much, and that's the truth, because when John would go to do business or to get high or both, he would leave her in the car with her little with her little dog, and sometimes he'd be up there two, three days on a fucking bender getting high and shit, leaving her in there, in the car. So she never, she knew locations, but she never met anybody or really saw too many people so she really does have an element of plausible deniability oh, hard to like, so you just sat in a car for a whole weekend 
Yes, because if she didn't, he'd beat the fuck out of her. Anyway, so um, she is released. The police try to offer him a deal of immunity by turning state's evidence, but when no deal could be reached, he wasn't given up any info. He was also released from police custody, but he was told not to leave town. So he goes to Sharon's house and he spills the fucking beans. He tells her about the Eddie Nash robbery and according to an interview with Sharon to the LA Times, quote, the day after the robbery, according to her account, one of Nash's associates saw Holmes walking down the street wearing a piece of the jewelry. We've already discussed this, but I wasn't sure if I put it in my notes or not. (laughs) Recapping. When Holmes returned to his car, two armed men forced him to drive to Nash. The Palestinian confiscated Holmes' address book and told him he'd kill his relatives if Holmes didn't take him to the people responsible for the break-in. Fearing for his family in Ohio and Sharon, Holmes did as he was ordered. He led Nash's henchmen to the Wonderland house, buzzed the intercom, and walked up the stairs with the gunman behind him. Inside, he was held at gunpoint and forced to watch the thugs bludgeon the residents to death, he told her according to the paper. He said, I had to stand there and watch what they did. Uh, Sharon goes, "Uh, how could you, John? And he goes, they were dirt. So I personally think that some of this, okay, so my side note here I wrote, I said side thought. Did he really tell Eddie the robbery details because he feared Eddie's threat or was he having sour grapes over his cut of the robbery? According to David Lynn's court testimony, John was, quote, peeved over his share, end quote. Peeved. Peeved. So, I mean, he's he's in court. He's got to clean up the language a little. I mean... I personally think that he did have sour grapes over the robbery or I wouldn't have put that. And then secondly, I think in a way he did fear for his mom because like in the movie Wonderland, Eddie Nash has got the book and he's all like, Mary Holmes lives in such and such in Ohio. And I mean, he knew everybody's fucking addresses, everything. So Eddie, honestly, I thought he had the money. He has the power. He has the gumption to make fucking people die. Anyway. But, okay, John's autobiography, he claims that he wasn't at the scenes of the Wonderland murders. He said, quote, Holmes insisted he was held captive at Nash's house during the murders. So there's so much confliction. And then throughout this documentary, everybody says that John was a liar. Like, everything that came out of his mouth was a fucking lie. So, for me... I believe a little bit of what John is telling Sharon, but I believe Sharon and honestly, I know David Lind is like a piece of fucking garbage here, you know, killing people, gangsters, stuff like that. But I believe the details of this more than if I heard it from John's mouth himself. So anyway, um, He wrote that he returned to the Wonderland house to find his roommates dead. So he was at Eddie Nash's house. Oh, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Um, He said, their heads were mutilated, pulverized. Nothing remained but slime. 
A few paragraphs later, he mused over who was responsible for the murders, suggesting that it might have been Nash's goons or some other drug dealer that the Wonderland owed money to. Uh, anyway, he's crying to Sharon about everything, and then he bounces again with Dawn because he fears Eddie Nash is out to get him, which he should be fucking afraid. And he doesn't want to be arrested either. So they take off. They stop in Vegas. They stop in Montana to see his sister. Uh, his mom calls while they're in Montana to let him know, hey, the FBI's looking for you. So, of course, they pack up. They hit the fucking road again. And this is when Don says, hey, I was raised in Florida. Let's go to Florida. Again, they are seeing the sights. It's like a fucking vacation. And then around Mississippi, Louisiana, they run out of money. So John starts stealing cars that were parked at hotels to, you know, get their supplemental cash. And they arrive in Miami and check into the Fountainhead Hotel on Collins Avenue. And this place was described as a, quote, flop house. <laughs> it was a hellhole. Uh, looking at the outside of it. I mean, it looked a little skeezy, but, you know, it, it's 80s TV footage, so it's like, well... Everything looks it, It's way. fucking grainy and old anyway, so I can't really determine. It's like, is that old paint or is that dirt? Is it just brown paint? What the fuck? So anyway, he's back to beating and pimping Dawn out and even beating her up in public. So this is Dawn's direct quote about what happened next. Quote, The next day... A few minutes after he left, uh, there was a knock at the door, and it was Big Rosie, the manager, and there was a few others that had lived there, Joe from the snack shop and another lady, Louise, who was a stripper. They just took over. They walked in, said, grab your things, get your dog, you're out of here, and they got me to a car, and boom, I was gone. I meant it just happened so fast. Those are better names. Who was it from the snack shop? Uh, just Joe from Joe the, the snack shop. Yeah. Big Rosie are here. And Louise the stripper. Louise the stripper. Those are three good character names. So, yeah, they're like in hiding, but he like fucking beats her down and these hotel people see it. And that's cool. I, you know, hats off to Big Rosie, Joe and Louise who saw this young woman in a fucking dire situation and they cared enough to get her out. So Don and John speak one last time in which he wanted to see her one last time. He's, you know, when you get away from that abusive relationship, a lot of times the abuser will be, come on, I just want to see you one last time. Just one last kiss. Just one last moment to really say goodbye. And nine times out of ten, it ends badly. Well, he had pulled this shit with her before and she always went back. But this time she didn't. So Dawn, actually, that was the last time she saw him, and she meets up with her brother, and he brings her to the police to talk about where John is. So she totally snitches him out. They tell her that a lot of people are looking to kill him, so she tells police where he's staying, uh, which was at the same motel, but then, so the police know where he's at, Miami SWAT, and two detectives from LAPD take him into custody according to a rolling stone quote about his capture they said that he was quote lying in bed watching reruns of gilligan's island <laughs> he calmly told the cops he was expecting them and even offered them coffee they declined 
handcuffed him, and shipped him back to California, end quote. Laying there naked, like, I've been waiting for you. And he's got, he's thinking about Marianne and Ginger. like, y'all want some coffee? So, this is all kind of takes place in December 1981. John is arrested for the four murders. Early 1982, LAPD is also building a case against Eddie Nash. Police raid his home multiple times, seizing a lot of cocaine. They said, quote here, a million dollars worth. His attorney tried to argue that two pounds of the cocaine was Eddie's personal use, but the judge gave him eight years anyway. Who had, where, okay, I know we know some shit is legal in California, and it just became legal over, definitely not in fucking 1982, but two pounds of cocaine for personal use? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's now... What's your amount? <laughs> you, don't, you don't use that for personal use? No. March of 1982, <laughs> John is officially charged with four counts of murder. So, in the WAD documentary, they speak to one of his attorneys, Michael Eggers. This is where shit gets a, I don't know. I got a little unclear of a detail here. So um, it's a rumor or speculation that the gang, um, Eddie Nash's gang, to implicate John Holmes after the murders, they made John stick his hand in the blood and put a handprint on the wall. Well, his attorney says, quote, there was a fingerprint or fingerprints. There was blood, and it was on the headboard near one of the victims, but there was no bloody fingerprints. I remember quite clearly that it was uh, the impression, perhaps, that some, uh, that some had in the courtroom before it was clarified by the defense. So there was no handprint, but there was a fingerprint or two. I don't know. He's so fucking vague, like... There was a fingerprint or fingerprints, but there was no bloody fingerprints. And it's like, so was it a fingerprint, two fingerprints, obviously not bloody? What the fuck? I mean, there's a lot of, like, not exactly detailed information here. Right, because so much of this is speculated because John was a fucking liar. So it's like, what, what was he fucking telling us? And then this is all pieced together with what he told Don, what he told Sharon, what David Lynn said, what the fucking crime scene said. Uh, so, so it's all based on what someone's saying, which is the most unreliable evidence you can use. And some of it's second and third hand information. So it's like, okay. Well, I felt that this was conflicting of what the evidence at the trial pointed out. So the prosecution, uh, the prosecution's deputy district attorney, Ron Cohen, argued, quote, that Holmes was responsible for the bludging at least one of the victims. Holmes had left a bloody palm print on the railing of Lioness's bed, the only suspicious print found at the crime scene. So... He says there's one, two fingerprints, not bloody. He's saying there's a bloody palm print. What the fuck? (laughs) So the only survivor, Susan, the wife of, um, the wife of whoever, anyway, the one who was shooting up and he's like, oh, baby, I'm clean. I can't think of his fucking name (laughs) right now. 
There's just so many names and so many people in this. Anyway, she was beaten badly and part of her skull had to be removed. But she testified that all she can remember is, quote, three shadowy figures. That's all she said she remembers that night. I mean, if it went down like the Wonderland movie, which I really feel like it did, she didn't have a chance to see nothing. They came in swinging fucking uh, lead pipes and turning everyone into applesauce. I mean, obviously, it's that bad if they had to have a video fucking walkthrough of the crime scene. Anyway, so Holmes didn't take the stand in his own defense during the trial because he was afraid Eddie Nash would carry out the threats against him. I also think he would have incriminated himself. I don't really think That's it probably was probably more of the thing. Like, right, this guy was a selfish fuck. When you're that much of a storyteller and exaggerator, it's probably advised like you do not get that fucking guy understand. He's gonna just he'll, he'll ruin everything. So after three weeks, on June 26, 1982, he is acquitted due to lack of evidence. Yes, they had prints, but here's what they kind of argued. There were prints at the crime scene, and they were suspicious, yes. But John had been in that house, spent years in that house. So those prints could have been there before the murders. There was nothing on tape, on the tape of the crime scene that implicated him, and John did not confirm nor deny that he was there that night, at least not on the stand. He told Sharon what happened, but says something different in his autobiography, and there are no witnesses to any of this. So, I mean, the fingerprint argument, it really does, unfortunately, it interjects reasonable doubt. Because, yeah, John could have been in that bedroom fucking somebody in there days before the murders. He spent years going to this house. He knew all those people. So those fingerprints probably were from the murder. I think that he was there, and I think they made him do stuff. Um, but once again, you can argue that John was, he probably took a nap there a couple days ago. John spends a lot of time in this house. So once you have reasonable doubt, you're done. You're that, done, son. You're done. Because once reasonable doubt is in a case, that just blows the whole fucking prosecution. That didn't sound right. It blows the whole case. So anyway, um, so Sharon said that after being released, that he called her, promised to change if she would start a new life with him. Um, So in the movie, Wonderland, it's actually, he goes, like the police have him at this hotel in hiding They're going to offer him witness protection, and he wants to take Dawn and Sharon. And Sharon's like, no, fuck, get the fuck out of my life. She And she says in the interview, she goes, probably for the first time in my life I ever said the word fuck. But she tells him, get the fuck out of my life. And that was the last time they spoke. Um... Unfortunately, Sharon would die in 2012 at the age of 69, and I looked into how she died, and I found her obituary, and I saw something that was really sweet, and that kind of warmed my heart, but they talk about what a wonderful person and what a wonderful nurse she was, but I liked at the bottom they included uh, when they say survived by, it says, quote here, her dear longtime friend Dawn Schiller. 
So her and Dawn went on to have a continued good relationship where I personally think Sharon kind of, you know, took care of Dawn, made sure she was safe and, you know, living right. So little side note there about Sharon and Dawn. Well, back to John and his legal troubles aren't quite over. What? So he's just been acquitted of all this. And in November of 1982, he was court ordered to testify in front of a grand jury about the murders. Well, you know that since he didn't take the stand in his own trial, he definitely ain't talking now. Well, he refuses and he's found in contempt and was arrested. So while in jail, he apparently writes his autobiography. Eddie Nash is now locked up uh, and because of the robberies and all this other case that they were building against Eddie Nash. But I don't go into the details because this ain't about Eddie Nash. So John hears about him being in jail and he has a change of heart about testifying to that grand jury. It says here that Holmes decided to answer just enough of the grand jury's questions to be released. He was in jail for about three and a half months. You have any thoughts on this, Evil? I just have to see what this guy looks like because I've not uh, had any idea, really, of what his image is. And I'm looking at the cover of Wad and like... Are you talking about John Holmes? Yeah. Oh, when he first... Okay, so... There's a picture where uh, when Bob Chen is first talking about him and he goes, oh, this scrawny guy, this scruffy guy with the big afro, I shit you not, he looks like my friend Alan. Wow. He looks like Alan in the face, but uh, John looks different through his whole career. Like when he first starts out, he looks like just a normal Joe. I'm going from the cover of Wad here, which uh, what a cover it is. Oh yeah, Uh, that one. uh, He looks like... Like a mustached Peter Weller. I'm totally going to include the cover of that documentary in my visual aids, as well as many other pictures of, like, uh, Dawn and uh, Eddie Nash and blah, blah, blah. He totally looks like he could be, like, John Carpenter's skeevy brother. Yeah, I totally agree with that. (laughs) So after his release, he gets in contact with Bill Amerson, his longtime friend and manager, and he got back into making pornos. So he goes out to San Francisco to make his returning movie. He makes his returning movie called Marathon. And that's where he meets wife number two, Lori Rose. Um, She has a porno name, Misty Dawn. So what are we going to refer to her as? Lori Rose or Misty Dawn? I think they both sound like porno names. (laughs) We'll just go with Lori Rose then. (laughs) What was it again? Lori Rose or Misty Dawn. What is Lori Don? Lori Don. That sounds stupid. <laughs> Misty Rose. Oh, um, so Bill Amerson said that she was known as, quote, known as the butt queen, butt queen of the porno industry. What does that mean? That means she liked and did a lot of anal. Oh, well, like, excuse me. Look at, give me that side eye. Like, I should know. Like, I'm, maybe just, maybe she's. I'm sorry, but if somebody says they're the butt queen of the porno industry, hey, you she, don't automatically think that they're into anal? That's assumption, and that's the mother of all fuck ups. She could um, just No, have, this is not an she assumption. Could just be, she says it right here. She's the butt queen. Butt well, that queen. Could just, that could just mean she just has a, has a set of buns that's like J. She has the J-Lo buns of the porn industry. You keep telling yourself that. Anyway. I don't, you never know. It's an assumption, and that's always a mistake. So he says that uh, it was his first movie 
after he was released. But of course, I went and looked at IMDb and he did four movies before he did Marathon. He did Up and Coming, Private Fantasies number one, Flesh and Lace part two as uh, and he plays a character named Dr. Pecker. And then he did Marathon. So, oh, and then a side note. A lot of people talk about, oh, John Holmes did a ton of gay porn. Actually, right after the movie Marathon, he made his only gay movie, which was called The Private Pleasures of John C. Holmes. And Bill said that he only he only interacted with one man. His name was Joey. And he said that John wasn't into it. So there wasn't a ton of gay porn. It was just one film, one man. <laughs> you know gay porn? No. Well, just one, and I wasn't that into it. <laughs> so, take from that what you will. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so he meets the butt queen of the industry, and they are attracted to each other. Uh, Sharon thinks that Misty Laurie was a replacement for Dawn, and she even says that. She's like, you know, she was younger, she kind of had that look. He kind of treated her the same way, too. But Misty said that their relationship was a fast one. She met in January, and they were living together by March. Misty said that John was good to her, but Bill Amerson says something completely different. He said that he treated her like garbage and even tried twice to run her down with his car. And he remembers this because this all went down at Bill's house. Because they were both living with Bill. Um, so he... It, He's making money, but it's not like the money he made in the 70s because now uh, it's no longer film. It's VHS. Uh, so the money just isn't where it used to be. And I, I would think it'd be better. Anyway, he continues to do drugs. And although the money wasn't like it used to be, he continued making a lot of movies, even if it was just a special appearance in a movie. I guess starring. So it's now October 1984, and his divorce to Sharon is final. Um, I have to put that in there because he remained married so long, but then he marries number two, and it's like, wait, did he divorce number one before he married number two? So yes, he did divorce number one, or she divorced him. So Bill says that him and John started HIV testing in the industry, he didn't, he doesn't say a date, so I'm guessing it was 1984-ish. He says that, quote, we were the first ones to insist that they do that. Prior to this, no one really cared much about, so to show the performers that we were really serious, John and I both took AIDS tests together and we both came back negative. So they continued doing tests over the next four or five months and then John's test came back positive. Um, Bill and John go to the doctor and he is diagnosed HIV positive. And that's uh, in 1985, he was diagnosed with AIDS. So um, I guess there was a little time between the diagnoses. So I feel uh, his following behavior was an effort to gain control in some sense or some sense of control. But John spiraled out of control with the smoking, his drinking, losing weight, declining health. He just didn't give a shit. He told people that he had colon cancer in an effort to cover up that he had AIDS. Hmm. 
Um, yeah, this gets a little more fucked up as we go. Uh, we thought the murders were bad. You think this guy's a piece of shit at this point? Just wait. So, the rumors start to spread that he's got AIDS from IV drug use, but everybody in this documentary, Bill, Sharon, Misty, Ron, even Ron Jeremy, uh, and a couple other actresses that they speak to, because they speak to fucking everybody in this, they said that John didn't like needles and he never shot up, so his contraction had to have come from sex. But he wasn't that into it. Not necessarily gay sex. I mean, that's kind of where it was coming from. That Not where it was coming from. It was affecting that group of people at that time. It was heavy in the homosexual community. But, um, shit, he could, who knows where he got it. He probably got it, you know, when he was pimping. Who knows? When he was selling himself to anybody who was interested. That's what I think. I think he got it at some point during his prostitution phases. So anyway, it's now the summer of 1986, and John gets offered a big money deal with Paradise Visuals to make some films in Italy. Uh, John has still kept his diagnosis under wraps, and no one is aware he has AIDS. He made uh, the film The Rise of the Omen of the Roman Empress and his final film, The Devil in Mr. Holmes. When that's not... Wow. <laughs> Ominous. Yeah. Okay, Misty said that he... Um, he was kind of of the mindset that everyone in the industry was going to get AIDS. So it didn't matter where they got the AIDS from. And he continued working unprotected because he needed the money. Yeah. Let that soak in for a minute. And when she's talking about him, like she's just kind of so nice and upbeat and just kind of, oh, John was great. And he continued working. And it's like, do you fucking hear what you're saying? He's fucking people with AIDS. I mean, maybe it's that glazed over, you know, everyone's everyone's much better after they're dead. Yeah, she's still doing... Yeah, it's like there's this part in, uh, what is it, Goodfellas, when she's like, when they die, they automatically start talking about them like they're saints. And it's like, ugh, I hate when people do that. If they were a piece of shit, why start talking good about them after they're dead? They're a piece of shit then. They're a piece of shit now. Being dead doesn't undo the piece of shit stuff they did. Oh, whatever. (laughs) Sure, I guess for some people. It validates everything after that. It's like, oh, well, they were a great person. Okay, so now it is January 1987. John and Misty Dawn go out to Las Vegas and get married. But he was so coked out and taking volume that he doesn't even remember it, according to some in the documentary. Like, when they get to the talk about him getting married, they're like, he, they refer to him like, I got married. We did what? What? Where? So yeah, that, but once again, Misty still talks about him. Like it's the, he was the greatest guy to her. And it's like, I married who? You don't get, he doesn't remember marrying you. He tries to run you down with a car two times. He beats you. He refers to you as garbage, but he's a saint. Uh, it's later in the year, October, November time frame of 1987, and John enters the VA hospital, and Misty doesn't let anyone in to see him. She said that she doesn't trust anyone at the time, especially people from the industry. 
Um, let the secret out. So five months later, uh, still in the hospital, John passes away at the age of 43 on March 13, 1988. He died from AIDS-related complications of, okay, I'm going to try to get this all right because these are some heavy-duty medical terms. He died from complications of cardiorespiratory arrest, which is a cardiac arrest, encephalitis, which is a swelling of the brain, uh, so encephalitis due to AIDS associated with lymph, some, anyway, some inflammation of the lymph nodes and esophageal candidesis, which is an infection of the esophagus. So he had, like, he went from a list of things. He was cremated and scattered off the seacoast of Oxnard, California. So the WAD documentary was good, and they don't really give like concrete, definite timelines. So that's why some my some of my times are a little convoluted because I'm going. This documentary was awesome, so I'm going based off of this documentary, and then I'm doing some reading to get me some dates of these events that are talked about on the documentary. Uh, they really cover everything, and they had a lot of good details and viewpoints. I highly recommend checking it out. You can currently, at this moment, until it gets flagged for that penis about eight minutes in, you can find <laughs> this documentary on YouTube, and it's called just WADD, W-A-D-D, The Life and Times of John C. Holmes. It's really good. So, uh, and despite some negative things that was said about him, they all still spoke of him fondly. And here's something that I found interesting. And they even kind of used this word in Boogie Nights. But when they talked to all the women, not all the women, but all the women in the documentary that had sex with him, of course, we all know this guy's like rocking over a foot long dong, you know, but each and every one of them said the same two words about having sex with him. Ow. No, the same two words. And it was, he was extremely gentle. Um, when they okay. got to his death, many got choked up, but they did a really good job at addressing the speculation around his life and then giving some facts. And this documentary was made in 1988, and it was written and directed by Cass Paley. So then we're going to kind of end this on a more lighter note because we've got people being bludgeoned into slime. <laughs> his words, not mine. Um him dying of AIDS, it's just, it's one fucking downer after another with this, which it is with all my cases, but we're going to kind of talk a little bit about some Boogie Nights in Wonderland. Boogie Nights came out in 97, Wonderland came out in 2003. So the documentary that I watched of this research doesn't include uh, many people he worked with through the years, but P.T. Anderson was in it, and he's, the, like I said, the writer-director of Boogie Nights. Um, okay, I had always heard Boogie Nights was, quote, loosely based on John Holmes. And it's in my personal opinion that the film, um, it had a couple of bullet points where it was accurate. But that movie is very loosely based on John Holmes. Uh, like I said, there was some bullet point stuff in there that it's like, okay, yeah, that happened. Okay, yeah, that happened. Okay, the rest of this is just movie. It's entertainment. And you know what, though? Uh, PT did good. Uh, Mark Wahlberg rocked that fucking shit good. 
it was just a good movie. Um, so uh, it was very loosely based. Uh, like one of the liberties they take is in Boogie Nights, the mom is a raging alcoholic that's abusive. And that actually wasn't the case. He had a good relationship with his mom up to his death. And um, she was at the scattering of the ashes from what my understanding. But uh, his dad, his real dad was an alcoholic and his stepdad was abusive. So once again, either way, his childhood wasn't exactly a good one. Um, I did like, okay, there's a scene, uh, where Mark Wahlberg is talking about where's Ringo. Uh, that is actually from a 1970 film, 75 film called tell them Johnny Watt is here where he talks about, I'm going to be nice. Now where the fuck is Ringo? So that actually really was from some john holmes films so like i said they do one of the 13 of the this it was set series it was 14 movies 14 movies I'm yeah he did he did 13 up. of them like all close back to back and then he of course had his legal issues he's in jail there's people getting killed he's running to florida and then he comes back and does the last of the johnny wad films <laughs> left us hanging for a couple of years and luckily he finished out the story okay so um his wikipedia page reads like gold like there's a mythology section which we're going to get into we're already an hour Friggin eight into this page. and then they talk about his penis but okay so i read years ago in an article that he had like slept with thousands of women i couldn't remember the exact number but when i started researching it i come to find out that it was 14,000 women. Um, so I couldn't find my math that I did years ago on my MySpace page, if that tells you how old that is. So I went back and re-researched this, and I found a couple of articles, and it said, John Holmes claimed to have slept with 14,000 women. What made him so appealing? So... When did he start keeping this record? So the first paragraph reads as, quote... Many men have made a point of publicizing how many women they have slept with during their lives. Basketball star Wilt Chamberlain, uh, in his 1991 biography, claimed that he slept with 20,000 women and uh, was known as the Big Dipper. The adult actor John Holmes claimed to have slept with over 14,000 women and was known as Johnny Wad, end quote. Okay, so... My first initial number, I thought it was 20,000. I guess I was a little off. So I researched this and we found that number. That's like a that's like <sighs> the entire capacity crowd of a Monday Night Raw. So I wanted another source of this number. So I found an Associated Press article the day that John died that said, quote, Holmes once claimed that he had sex with 14,000 women on and off screen. So the number of partners... Uh, is a section on his Wikipedia page, and it appears that this 14,000 is kind of credible. I keep seeing this number, um, and plus this isn't really about that being true. I want to know if he can do it. Can you sleep with over 14,000 women? No. So the somebody in the WAD documentary, I can't remember the guy's name. He was uh, His title is a publisher, something Goldstein. Anyway, he argues that... It was more like seven, eight thousand, as opposed to fourteen thousand. So, and he go, he quote says, 
if you do the math, you'll find that it's probably impossible. Yeah. Bill Amerson said that. Well, you know what? Bill Amerson and evil, I accept that challenge. I will, uh, yeah, I will throw it down there. To be able to do anything else with your life, like stealing cars. Okay, so from here, kind of I researched some dates about like when he was born, when he started mm-hmm. his adult career, when he died, etc., etc. So we have, I cannot go from when he lost his virginity because we have conflicting reports as to how he lost his virginity. Of course we do. Okay, so you're going to love both of these stories. Mm. And, of course, these came from John's mouth himself. So how do you know when John was lying? His lips were moving. So he says that he lost his virginity at the age of six to his Swiss nursemaid, Frida. What, nothing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, all right, that just completely bullshits the whole rest of anything else you're going to say. Okay. That's your your jumping off point. Six years old. There's no... There's no credibility to any of this. Okay, so others claim that he was 12 to a 36-year-old friend of his mother's. But since I kept finding conflicting ages, I'm going to start with what I know. I'm going to start with the facts, which is when he got into porn. Like, right there, I know for a fact he had fucked. We have it on film. He has had sex. So his Wikipedia page uh, says that he has documented credits for at least 573 films. So I knew I had my work cut out for me. However, I couldn't. I was reading more. And that 573 is some bullshit. Really? Okay, yes. And I get And what it is is, um, so he has two internet movie database pages he's got the regular imdb and then he's got the adult one the uh internet adult movie database and that's listed as 772 credits on there however they're counting everything that he like if a little clip of something was used and i mean they're counting shit up to today so i'm not counting a fucking clip used in a movie so i'm going with imdb so, okay, it says here, I don't know why I put this here. Oh, this is some more mythology. It says here, Hol- all mythology. Holmes was best known for his exceptionally large penis, which was heavily promoted for its size, rigidity, and purported endurance. However, rigidity? Yeah, if it was like rigid, you know, steadfast. Okay, sure. These aren't my words. I'm. This is a direct quote. I'm just, I'm just trying to accept in my head like a selling point is the rigidity of a penis. Oh, I. Uh, the reason why this comment is here in the middle of it, in the middle of his fourteen thousand women, is I started here and I just didn't move this note. But anyway, however, no documented measurement of Holmes's actual penis link girth. Girth. And sexual stamina, stamina or ejaculate volume has ever been confirmed. And yes, they felt the need to put ejaculate volume. Uh. So, yeah. So when watching this documentary, uh, Bill Amerson, like I said, he says, quote, it was actually 13 and a half inches long because John measured it many times for people that didn't believe him. Um, another guy in the documentary with his arm extended out says, we're talking about a dick from my elbow down. 
So, if that kind of gives you anything, but okay. I'm giving bullshit to all of this. Nothing then, is truth. Okay, so I've seen a John Holmes porno once, and it is huge. Everything looks bigger on he, camera. No, no. Camera like, is 10 pounds. He, okay, so, like, he couldn't get it even all the way into the woman, and then when she went to go give him oral, she couldn't, she was just licking around it. She couldn't get it in her mouth. So he just hires smaller women. So it looks better on camera. Okay, so... photography. This is something I found interesting. According to a 1997 Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy article called Penal Erections, Shape, Angle, and Length. That was the name of the article. It says here that fewer than 0.2% of penises are 9.5 inches or bigger. So John Holmes... Because he was so big, he literally became a basis of comparison. Okay, so I couldn't help but notice upon further reading that there was this Holmes mythology section that I mentioned earlier. And here they say they give four of his most dubious myths. But when reading some of these, it's like this. Dubious? Yeah, dubious. I'm sorry. Devious is is just as appropriate. So dubious. Um, I didn't really think that any of these were all that dubious, except for maybe like the last one. But it said here that Holmes's penis was so big that he had to stop wearing underwear because, quote, I was getting erections and snapping the elastic. Oh, come the fuck on. Waistbands. I was snapping elastic waistbands four or five times a month. Yeah, it's not his cocaine problem. That's why he's broke. He's running through underwear left and right. Okay, so then another myth about him was that he had degrees in physical therapy, medicine, and political science from UCLA. And, okay, so Holmes, in fact, was never... He was a high school dropout and never returned to school. No shit! And and this is what Bill Amerson says about this myth. He said... The closest John ever got to UCLA was breaking into cars in the school parking lot. <laughs> that may be the only truthful statement of this entire show. Okay, Bill Chin, um, I'm sorry, Bob Chin, Bill Amerson, Sharon, and Don. These four people, I believe everything out of their mouth in this documentary. But yeah. moving on. Okay, another myth was home, Holmes and Ken Osmond, the guy who played Eddie Haskell from Leave It to Beaver, were the same person. Uh, in reality, the two men just kind of shared a resemblance. Uh-huh. So Eddie Haskell was not John Holmes. Eddie Haskell was not doing porn. This is this is what conspiracy theories were pre-internet days. Okay, this one is the best one. I couldn't wait to get this to this. This is the best one. I couldn't wait to get to this one. Oh, okay, right, so this is. Me. This is the fourth myth. There are tons of, tons of them, but this is the one that was shared. Okay, during the filming of a gay feature film, <laughs> Holmes inadvertently killed two male performers and was tried for manslaughter. The judge in the case sends Holmes to abstain from performing anal sex in any future films. He Mr. Horse somebody, Mr. Hand somebody. So appara- two somebody's? apparently he was so big that he killed two dudes. At the same and time, his punishment in court was no more anal sex on film. <laughs> that's about a, that's that sounds like on par with the Seinfeld episode of like I'm gonna he's gonna become my butler because he was in a car accident with no insurance. 
he t- killed one man with his penis, and they're like, all right, oh. one more time. But if you kill one more guy, we're going to have to take this to court. Okay, so we haven't even got to the 14,000 when we touched on that, but then we started getting to the Cause mythology. Because it's, it's bullshit. You throw that out. Okay, now, keep in mind, there is a margin of error because I'm only counting credited <laughs> roles. There's a whole fuck of a lot of margin of error here. Okay, I doubt that when he was playing, uh, okay, in the movie 1969, The Ice House, he plays a character, quote, guy in parked car. I'm sure he wasn't having sex in that role, so I cannot count it. I have to go with when well, he why would started. You hire him then. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to start with credited roles when I know he officially was doing the do. So he started his acting career in 1968, but like I said, those are all uncredited. He doesn't get credited until 1970. In the movie, quote, Four Women in Trouble. So we will start in 1970 when he was 26 years old. I'm sure he was having sex before then, but once again, we have to go with the facts. So anyway, um, so from 1970, his credited role, to 1988 is 18 years. 14,000 women divided by 18 years is 778 women a year. 778 women divided by 12 months is 65 women a month. 65 women divided by 30 days is 2.16 women a day. So I actually kind of broke that down. And two women a day is not quite 14,000. It's like 13 and some change. But three women, it's a little more than 14,000. So basically he has to sleep with like two and a half women a day for 18 years. Who, do you think you could do it? Hell no. That sounds like a le- that sounds like a level of hell. Okay, so it is completely possible that Holmes slept with fourteen thousand women, and of course, that eighteen years. If we knew a definite date of when he lost his virginity, that of course would change the timeline. From and basically, he would only need to sleep with you know like maybe just two women a year or just one and a half women over say twenty twenty five years. Yeah, because you could start from age six or twelve. You know, I was not going to do that. I went with the facts, so it makes it all just achievable. The average number of women per day will go down, and and so based on his like if we started before nineteen seventy. So, really, if you just boned three women a day for 18 years, you can totally achieve those numbers. You'll be dead afterwards because there'll be nothing left of you. However, though, you don't have to do three women a day because there are some days maybe he was boning nine women and he took Wednesday off. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, so he had nine women and he was able to take a couple days off. But the average is he needs to sleep with only two and a half women a day. For 18 years. Was that an amputee? A half woman? That just Man, I'm just going I'm just going with the numbers. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, just want to know what a half a woman is. I don't know what a half a woman is either. I'm just saying he would only have to do it. If he did it three times a day, it would be too much. He would overachieve 14,000. So you know what? We'll just go with three women a day for hey, 18 where's years. The, where's the stopping point? Is it just... Putting it in, and then, all right, that counts, or is it to completion on each woman? Like where For is... me, personally, I think it has to go to completion. So he's like, has to come three times a day. 
he'll be dead. <laughs> There's nothing left of him. Well, now that we have discussed the Wonderland he would, murders. He would go from like Lou Ferrigno to looking like George Burns after those 18 years. You know, totally worth it, though, probably. No, it's not. What else you get? <laughs> there's no time for anything else in your life. You don't even have time to eat. I mean, what if he was a five-minute guy each time? That's only 15 minutes out of his day. But every day? Let people be... fucking exercise for 20 minutes a day every day. So yeah, they do different parts. You do That's why there's such thing as a leg day or an arms day or a back day. <laughs> it's not the same, <laughs> same area every day for 15 minutes every day. I don't know how people are working out. I just know there are people that work out every day for hours upon hours. And they're doing it for 15, 20 fucking years and they're yeah, just they're fine. Not cla- they're not claiming I've, been, I've worked out in 14,000 gyms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody, some health nut out there doing that. Don't but know. on that note, um, you can find my visual aids on and make suggestions Your for PG a case. visual aids. Maybe you should preface that for this one. Uh, well, I wasn't going to put a picture of his dong on there, but I was going to put pictures of all these people it's, I talked about. It's a picture of a pig in a blanket. <laughs> it is a pig in a blanket. Um, anyway, you can find those at Housewife of Horrors uh, on Instagram and Facebook. Drop me a line. Check out some visual aids. Check out past episodes if you like. Um, And I hope you enjoyed this show. I definitely enjoyed this one a lot more than the last episode because that was really heavy and I'm glad we got to lighten it up with some dick humor this week. So on that note, uh, thank you for your listens, love, and support, and you all stay safe out there.